Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Eurasia Center Wonkcast. My name is Cole Davila. I'm here with my co-host, Casey Chambers. Uh, hey, Cole. How's it going? <clears throat> and Noah Brewster. Hey, Cole. Hope it's going well. Good to see you again. We are going to talk to you all about East Asia relations, specifically relations between the U.S., Korea, Japan, and Taiwan. Now we're going to be covering this because of the recent U.S. pushes and pivots, as a as U.S. Uh, diplomatic uh, terminology would use, into East Asia to combat growing Chinese influence in the region. In the region, so uh, if one of you all could tell us a little bit about the history, uh, Casey, perhaps a little bit about the history of the region and the modern um, world, and specifically why this area might be so important for the U.S. to pivot to. Yeah, so starting in 2010 under then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, the administration said that the U.S. would be moving its resources and concern towards East Asia. Our, we've had long-term uh, alliances with South Korea and Japan. The U.S. maintains an unofficial relationship, uh, friendly one with Taiwan. And as China has become an increasingly larger player on the global stage, the U.S. does not seek to have great power competition. And secretaries of state and uh, secretaries of defense have reiterated this on multiple occasions. But the U.S. takes actions that appear at face value to effectively be a policy in containment, especially when it comes to preventing conflict in hotspot regions, um, the uh, Senkaku or uh, Daiyao Islands, uh, the southern tip of the Japanese uh, island chain, is an example. The U.S. has said affirmatively that we view those islands as part of Japan and fall under the uh, treaty obliging the U.S. to defend Japan in case of attack by a foreign nation. Taiwan has always been a sticking point in the U.S.-China relationship. It was the most tenuous factor that prevented diplomatic relations between the People's Republic of China and the United States. The U.S. has maintained a one-China policy uh, since 1973 and diplomatic relations were established, but has never... <laughs> formally said which China is China. The U.S. has in the past refrained from high-level diplomatic contacts with Taiwan, but is obliged to make sure that Taiwan's military is would be effective in, de in defending itself against People's Republic of China. Uh, weapon sales uh, on a semi-annual basis always upset Beijing. And recent diplomatic uh, engagement has uh, increased between the two sides. Uh, when it comes to Korea, South Korea is an important U.S. ally. There was the Korean War that ended in a stalemate. North Korea has had a nuclear weapons program for decades at this point. And, you know, it is a tight, congested region with a large number of security issues and you know five trillion dollars worth of trade goes to the south china sea which i haven't even brought up yet and 
the nine dash line, China's expansionism, um, as well as <clears throat> US efforts to resist that. Yeah, that long history in the region seems like it'd be a, or it is a major sticking point for security because of course you have the Republic of China, the official name of Taiwan, claiming all of China because they were the government of China during and just before World and just after World War II. But then they were forced out by the People's Republic of China under Mao Zedong. Um, and then, of course, you have U.S. close ties to Japan and Korea, but Japan and Korea don't have close ties with each other. They kind of hate each other due to historical problems between both those countries that go back more recently from World War II and just prior to it, but even go back centuries to Japanese attacks against the Korean Peninsula um, during um, the old Korean kingdom periods. So it's all a, a, a diplomatic mess to say the least, I think. Yeah, the US uh, retains close relationships with both sides. Um, both uh, President uh, Moon Jae-in of South Korea and uh, Yoshihide uh, Suga from Japan have visited uh, President Biden in D.C. And Biden has affirmed uh, close relationships with both um, parties, uh, both on you know, hard security defense issues as well as, you know, governance, economics. Japan and South Korea are friends of the U.S. because they are friendly democracies uh, and, and, and close U.S. partners in the region as a result of it. And yeah, they, the U.S. and both Japan and Korea reinforce each other against you know, authoritarian uh, revisionist powers of China, you know, threatens the South China Sea more specifically, as well as in Taiwan. That's, that's why in discussing East Asian relations, you have to include Taiwan, because that's a, that's a close U.S. partner, uh, as well as North Korea, who threatens the security of the entire region, including China. But with North Korean proximity to the Chinese border, uh, it's a sensitive subject to say the the least. And in the last decade, that competition has taken on uh, non-military factors as well. You had Donald Trump, uh, you know, trying to ban TikTok and WeChat on national security grounds, which has since been undone. Even the Trump administration stopped trying to enforce the, the TikTok ban as it became clear that legally it wouldn't work. But you know, uh, China is pursuing military civil fusion. Uh, the Belt and Road Initiative is trying to change global governance at the same time that the U.S. is moving into the region with you know strong strong allies as well as uh, allies of convenience and trying to push back against that. And that relationship does you know begin with histor the historical U.S. allies of uh, South Korea, Japan as well as Taiwan, who the U.S. is 
culturally, legally, and militarily obliged to be in a, a supporter of. Yeah, and even uh, in recent, uh, at least last month there or so, uh, even relations with Taiwan are increasing even more with uh, talks of trade deals and whatnot, which adds more tension on a uh, relationship with our uh, ties with uh, China and whatnot. And uh, Taiwan is a very big source for semiconductors and other electronic equipment, computers, parts and whatnot. And so the US has been increasing trade with Taiwan recently. And even um, last, just last week, uh, the Biden administration rolled out a vaccine distribution plan and that includes sending vaccines to Taiwan. So the relationship there has been increasing and becoming more friendly uh, through this new administration as well. Yeah, even with those increased ties and the importance of the technological stuff that's supplied by Taiwan, I do wonder what the U.S. would do if China did push their luck with Taiwan and try and claim what they claim is, a, is part of China, but just in, you know, almost like it's in rebellion, not quite obviously, but um, if they tried to reclaim it, what the, the world would do, because obviously any war with China would be devastating for not only the population in the region, but the global economy, you, have, you know, the US and China, the two largest economies going at it, the world's gonna suffer from it. Um, so I do wonder in the future, if, war, if it did come to war, how the US would respond, if the US would respond to military action against Taiwan with military action against China. But obviously that's just a, a hypothetical that hopefully we don't ever have to come, come up with. Um, but I think something we should note is China's diplomatic efforts in the region seem to be different from the, the orthodox way. You know, usually in countries would want to make friendlier relations with their neighbors, but China seems to be taking a, a stronger uh, or hardline approach towards its neighbors, obviously building islands in the South China Sea, antagonizing the Philippines and uh, their old ally Vietnam, Vietnam, and they seem to be only having ties with North Korea. What do you guys think about that sort of activity by China? Does the term wolf warrior mean anything to either of you two? Not to me. Yeah, me neither. Uh, so, uh, China has pursued uh, wolf warrior diplomacy. The concept partially rooted in historical um, relations between China and its neighbors, as well as uh, geopolitical and geostrategic realities today, that Beijing has in the past refrained from playing an active role on the global stage and is now uh, asserting its dominance, if you will, across the board when it comes to trade, when it comes to the Belt and Road Initiative, when it comes to uh, control of the, the claimed nine-dash line in the South China Sea. The, the nine-dash line, of course, is the um, zone of uh, <clears throat> the South China Sea that uh, China claims based on historical uh, 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 claims and maps, but is not rooted in the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea or 
geography. It extends quite far south into the territorial waters of six other countries, I believe. Um, <clears throat> the, the United States has uh, noted a ruling from uh, a, a UN court that uh, the, the Nine National Line was not a uh, legal claim to territorial water, but the U.S. itself is not a signatory to the uh, United Nations Convention on Policy. Uh, however, the U.S., as a matter of policy, does uh, follow the, the stipulations within said treaty, although it uh, is not a, a signatory. Uh, returning to your uh, comment about Taiwan coal, the U.S. has strategic ambiguity in the region, so it is not publicly said whether or not it would defend Taiwan in event of conflict. It's widely assumed that the United States would as a result of domestic political pressure and the existing close relationship between the government of the Republic of China and the United States. Although, say for um, the, the US has formal uh, military treaties uh, with Japan and South Korea, that those do not exist with Taiwan. Although there is strong support in Congress for the American defense of Taiwan in any administration that was weak in response to uh, a Chinese attempt to change territorial boundaries by force would, would certainly play, face pressure from domestically to, to respond. Uh, this uh, podcast discussed recently the incursions of Chinese fighters and bombers into uh, Taiwan's air defense identification zone, which in the last month or two has slowed down significantly after the United States and Japan uh, issued a statement that uh, they would work together um, and cooperate on military and defense matters, uh, including when it comes to uh, Taiwan, which was as firm of a diplomatic message as the U.S. would send of support of Taiwan. Uh, Japan, of course, its self-defense force is not legally allowed to pursue conflict abroad. However, attacks on, say, American aircraft or uh, vessels in the region uh, as part of any hypothetical conflict, the Japanese self-defense forces would be legally, legally required to protect uh, U.S. vessels in the region. Um, of course, the goal is to not have that. That is why the U.S. maintains an assertive defense posture. The, the Pentagon has been talking about developing new technologies, placing new resources in the region uh, as part of active U.S. engagement there. Yeah. An interesting part about the Japanese um, relations with the U.S. when it comes to defense matters is obviously um, the situation in Okinawa um, of World War II fame, but there's still a large U.S. military base there, and it's been there really since the end of the war. But the people of Okinawa don't like the U.S. base being there. And one, it's obviously a major target for any attack, but also the crime issues with U.S personnel that occur in that area have caused a bit of a stir in the, not only in the country, in 
that part of Japan, but also the rest of Japan in pushing for the U.S. to either relinquish control of the military base in Okinawa or at the very least significantly reduce its size to limit any criminal elements that may show up as a result of U.S. military personnel being there. So I wonder if that domestic pressure from people of Okinawa and other parts of Japan could weaken U.S. strategic abilities in that region since Okinawa is in such an important part of the world, especially in the Pacific. But of course, these these old issues from World War II, I mean, stem, you know, especially between the South Koreans and Japan, any war in that region require both of them to cooperate. But, you know, um, their long history of animosity, especially around things like the uh, Yashikuni Shrine in uh, Japan, you know, seem like it might be a bar to any cooperation between those countries, at least in a major uh in a major way, somewhere similar to military cooperation between, let's say, EU states or something of the sort. I would not characterize it as similar to EU states. The level of animosity between South Korea and Japan is significantly higher than EU states that have, you know, existed in relative harmony and cooperation for, for many years at this point. Oh, for sure. I, what I meant by EU states was just their general cooperation. So like military drills between each other and stuff like that for preparedness. But yeah, no, I agree. Their, their animosity is something on a whole nother level between than any kind of European animosity. Yes. The, the military or military engagement between the Japanese and South Korean governments is certainly a marriage of convenience, not love. As you noted, the uh, Yasukuni Shrine to uh, fallen Japanese soldiers, including uh, soldiers from World War II, uh, visits from the Japanese Prime Minister to that shrine are highly offensive in Korea. You have the Comfort Woman issue, which has uh, continuously uh, been a thorn in the side of Japanese-South Korean relations. Uh, in the course of the war, Japan made uh, Korean women sex slaves uh, for, the, for the service of Japanese officers. And that, among other war crimes, was uh, a, a significant thorn in the side of relations between the, the two countries, even as the U.S. had, uh, had uh, forged close alliances between both countries independently of each other. In 1965, there was a cooling of tensions as Japan agreed to pay uh, some level of, of reparations, uh, but not uh, accept blame for the war itself or uh, issue a formal apology to South Korea. That formal apology has been something the South Korean government has been searching for decades at this point. There were diplomatic flare-ups in, in 2008 and 2018 and 2019, where South Korea threatened to uh, not renew a military intelligence sharing agreement uh, that had been uh, signed at the request of the United States. The, 
the two countries agreed to share information on North Korea without the U.S. as an intermediary, which had been the situation beforehand. And uh, Korea uh, took serious offense to uh, Japan's refusal to issue a formal apology. They placed a statue of uh, a comfort woman outside the Japanese embassy, which uh, resulted in Japan recalling their ambassador. Uh, however, under uh, serious U.S. pressure on both sides to not you know, completely have a breakdown in relations, uh, the, the military intelligence sharing agreement was continued, but with a uh, Japanese-Korean understanding that rather than annual renewal, that South Korea could uh, remove itself from that agreement at any time. Yeah, and that, uh, that uh, sorry, words, words uh, losing my mind. Um, in January, they uh, had more to uh, say about with the thing with the comfort woman and um, up to uh, the Seoul courts ordering uh, Japan government to pay 100 million uh, won, or that's 91, about 91,000 uh, US dollars to each of the families of the comfort women that are still alive today. And uh, Japan took offense to that and claimed it was not allowed or anything. So that debate and um, that connection between the two is still going on today. And it does keep a thorn in any possible relation between those two countries. And my understanding of the comfort women issue is it's, it's primarily a Korea-Japan relations issue, but I think there's also um, animosity between uh, Japan and other countries in the area, such as um, the Philippines, and I think even Vietnam, uh, to some extent of, from their occupation period there, taking advantage of the populations. Really, Japan's history in the region uh, from World War II is hampering relations in general. Um, of course, it is very difficult for a country to admit these things. And there is a nationalist element in J Japan that either doesn't want to admit it or actively denies that these things uh, happen. Uh, things like the uh, you know, massacres in China, for example, strange Japanese and Chinese relations for years as nobody could agree on the extent of the Japanese atrocities in China. Um, so it seems like in the region, we're still living with the, the fallout from a war that was you know, 80 something years ago, or almost 80 years ago now. Yeah, this has to do with the, the politics of memory where Japan uh, with US both assistance and understanding did not seriously prosecute uh, war criminals or leaders of the, the World War II era government uh, as a result of the, the, the Soviet threat and the spread of communism in the world. So as Germany, uh, because of the extent of Germany's crimes uh, in Europe and the Holocaust, fully atoned for the Nazi government's actions and the, the German government you know, has memorials, teaches the, his, the, the full unblemished history of the war in schools, and it has profusely apologized uh, to the victims of the war, whereas Japan 
the Japanese government acknowledges things like comfort women, but certainly doesn't teach it in schools. The, the conservative streak of Japanese politics continued through after the war, uh, including those government officials that retained high level positions even after the, the defeat of the empire. And Japan never has seriously dealt with uh, its, its colonial or imperial history. And that does affect relations with Korea, it affects relations with uh, China severely, where now China is still um, calling out Japan uh, in, in public diplomacy as well, as well as formal diplomacy for its actions uh, between uh, 1937 and 1945. Yeah, and on that war tribunal, that point that you made, um, I mean, in, like you said, the German and the Nuremberg trials, the more famous of the two war crime uh, trials, obviously the Nazis were held much more accountable. Their prison sentences typically were longer. They were more brutal in some cases with executions, whereas in, in Japan, I think there were a couple executions, but some people you know, got a few years and then were paroled out almost immediately. Um, despite some of the atrocities being just almost as bad as what the Nazis had done in, let's say, Poland or, or in the Soviet Union. Um, you know, some of these Japanese were using biological warfare agents, spreading, deliberately spreading um, plague-infested rats and cholera and anthrax and things like that on the Chinese population, yet there was very little relative accountability in the area because like you had said there's a geopolitical interest in restoring Japan quickly to counter Soviet um, expansion and power obviously once the communists took over China that became even more important that you had a strong recovered Japan to counter um, growing Soviet influence in the region so you know, the Cold War continues to kind of bite everybody in the butt going forward. And who knows how long that'll take until that's rectified. And as you note about the rise of uh, the People's Republic of China, that directly coincides with the, um, mo uh, the movement of the uh, Kuomintang government to Taiwan and the multiple Taiwan Strait crises that have happened. Uh, in the years since, um, including 1996, where U.S. aircraft carriers um, entered the Taiwan Strait in defense of Taiwan, which gives, you know, once again, returning to your question, a, a, a sense of what American response would be if Taiwan ever wasn't uh, invaded. Uh, but that was in 1996, pre-massive uh, amounts of Western engagement uh, Western companies are ubiquitous within China. China's become uh, a significant uh, export uh, source of uh, materials and goods all across the world, as well as you know a couple decades since then of technological development, as well as um, trade and intellectual property theft including uh, of things that have military uses. They certainly, uh... all right, 
I hope that didn't come through on the podcast, but that was a very close uh, lightning strike to my house. <laughs> um, screen got very, uh, very bright for a second. And uh, the, the military civil fusion and modernization of, Chinese mili- of the Chinese military has continued. And, you know, as, as China gets more assertive abroad and pursues wolf warrior front of diplomacy, Taipei is potentially the, one of the uh, first areas that would feel the, the, the force of that. Yeah, all in all, it's a, a very complicated situation in, in that part of the world for many different reasons stemming back a very long time, long before any of us were born. But any other thoughts that you all have before we end this episode? Uh, Yeah, I just agree with what you said to say a final thing. And um, it is a complicated area and ties are gonna change here and there. But I think right now it's, uh, we have a strong relationship with Japan and South Korea, and we're building one even more with Taiwan. And I think that's good for what we have for now. Yeah, my, my thoughts on the matter are, as you noted, Cole, the, the Cold War will never fully cease to influence US policy or posture abroad. Um, but in a new era of you know globalization, economic integration, that it's not just all about who has the biggest guns, it's also about who has the, the most enduring values, the value of democracy integration between the US and its allies. Uh, certainly if South Korea and Japan could ever you know fully resolve their issues. Uh, right now, President Moon Jae-in of the, of the Korean left is unlikely to um, <clears throat> meaningfully push that relationship forward. But Yoshihide Suga uh, is less of an ardent nationalist uh, than, than Shinzo Abe was, who uh, was, a, was a significant thorn inside of Japanese-South Korean relations. And, you know, maintaining a... Uh, uh, Eastern uh, Asia with uh, the free flow of, of people's commerce, navigation, the preservation of democracies, including that on uh, those democracies on Taiwan are goals that the, the world should uh, seek to defend and promote. Yeah, I agree. Only in the future can know what, will happen in that region hopefully everything works out and stays peaceful and those countries are able to deal with their um, issues in a peaceful manner but thank you all again for listening to this Eurasia Center longcast my name is Cole Davila and I hope that you all have a good morning good afternoon good evening and a good night thank you all for listening see you next time